Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we discuss our Lutheran confessions, what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutherans before all those around us, before our neighbors, before our friends, before our families, before our churches, even before the pagans that surround us. Uh, this is the faith we confess. I'm your host this week, Pastor Joshua Shear, coming to you from Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I serve as pastor at our Savior Lutheran Church here in Cheyenne. And I have two guests with me today, Pastor Mike Grevy from Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Golden, Illinois. Pastor Grevy, are you there with me? I am here, Pastor Shear. Good to be with you this afternoon. Indeed. And then Pastor Matt Moss, Senior Pastor at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church and School in Corcoran or Maple Grove, Minnesota. Pastor Moss, are you with us? I'm here. Good to be with you all. Excellent. We are talking sin today. Um, not in the way that most pagans would want to talk about sin, but we're going to talk about what the Bible says about sin, and thus what the confessions speak and confess concerning sin. We're in the small called articles of the Book of Concord, this document written by Martin Luther of, of blessed memory. And uh, we are in the third part. We're beginning the third part. The other hosts handled the first couple parts there. And now we're in the third part, so you'll find that... Uh, right before Article 1 on sin in this third part, there's just a little introduction. We'll cover that uh, right now. It says, We may be able to discuss the following articles with learned and reasonable people or among ourselves. The Pope and his government do not care much about these. With them, conscience is nothing, but money, honors, and power are everything. So what you have in this opening, just a little intro to the third section of the, of the small called articles, is Luther's kind of belief that by now the things that they've discussed and especially including the abominations of the mass and the office of the papacy being the antichrist and so forth that that by now the roman catholics are not interested in these matters uh in hearing this confession um because this is really going to what follows is going to be about people's consciences which of course for a lutheran theologian a lutheran pastor is, is the key task of our ministry, is to give our people a good and pure conscience before God using the means of grace, that is the Word of God, preaching and so forth, baptism, Lord's Supper, absolution, all these wonderful gifts that God has given us, to, to give our people a good and clean conscience uh, before God. But here it's talking, of course, that they're more interested in money, honors, and power uh, for them which uh, in, in Reformation times especially is true, but this is true even in our today, uh, that what matters most is those things. And frankly, it's not just a Roman Catholic error. It is a common error amongst the organized Christian church, organizational, institutional, and so forth, uh, to have these temptations as well to, to uh, money, honors, and power. Um, I think that's a good reminder, especially as we're heading into the season uh, for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Uh, Pastor Grevy, do you have any comments on this first little intro? 
Not too much, really. I mean, um, yes, as it says, uh, the Pope and his government do not care uh, much about these um, these articles, and including the one on original sin. So, um, but uh, we we should care about it, and we need to care about it because it really does not only uh, point out um, the root. Uh, of all sin, uh, which has been inherited by us all, but then also, um, in a very real way, then uh, it makes the gospel uh, even sweeter. Um, because um, if there's nothing, uh, if there were nothing from which we needed to be rescued, then uh, maybe we could soft shoe original sin and say that it's not that big of a deal. But but we really can't. We really, it is a big deal, and. Uh, um, without uh, the pure grace of God, uh, we could not be rescued from original sin. But with his pure grace, uh, we indeed are. Excellent. Pastor Moss, do you have something you want to add about the intro? Yeah, of course. Uh, this is just a great reminder that uh, the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation in particular, was a pastoral Reformation more than a political Reformation. It obviously had effects on the geopolitical scene in Europe, but the chief concern of the confessors, like Luther and his colleagues, was the care of consciences, the, the real souls of real people, which is still the case today. I think uh, many skeptics of, you know, quote-unquote organized religion just think that we're all concerned with power and politics, and they only care if we say something about what's happening politically and covered by CNN. But... Our concern is not uh, power, honor, money, all this. It's the the care of souls, and uh, God help us in the church if we ever lose sight of that. Indeed, and that's and then, like I said, that's the temptation we fall into is is that the temptation to seek after those earthly things, uh, which will fast fade away. Um, they just they they won't last. And besides that, this is not what Christ has given His church to take care of. Um, his kingdom is not of this world, and so we. Uh, we embrace these things, and you're right, the pastoral, uh, here. but the beauty of this, of course, is that Luther is writing this up as a confession that German princes are going to be using, signing, you know, forming an alliance around. So so here in America, that's a really strange uh, combination that, you know, you have this religious confession based around the, the pastoral care of souls, and yet you have princes and alliances being formed around it. You want to give any comment on that? Well, they're real people, too, and they've got real consciences, uh, and they have to stand before God. Maybe maybe they consider that more fully than ours do today, uh, but I think if we uh, do take the time and get to know some of our uh, legislators and people as people instead of per their office, I think we learn that, too. And so we have a message that they need to hear, a message of sin and a message of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, and, and in fact, even as political figures, they have a responsibility to God as well. And uh, this is something that most people would write off as, as not necessary, but the Bible clearly lays out that those who are put in such authority are accountable to God for how they conduct themselves in their office, uh, no matter what party or affiliation they have. And uh, that should be a fearful thing in anyone who serves in the public sphere uh, in those offices, um, that they are bound still to the God that is there, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and even if they don't acknowledge Him, they're still bound to Him. So, All right, let's go into this Article 1 of Sin. 
All right, so here we're going to get the Lutheran, uh, and this is a very distinctively biblical, but yet distinctively Lutheran standpoint. And I think, Pastor Grieve, you touched upon this. You know, if we just kind of water down original sin, you know, and this is the temptation of the Christian church that many errors have come in this way. So we'll we'll, do, we'll read paragraph one here. Here we must confess, as St. Paul says in Romans 5.12, that sin originated from one man, Adam. By his disobedience, all people were made sinners and became subject to death and the devil. This is called original, or the chief, sin. All right. Pastor, uh, Pastor Grievy, since you did bring that up, how, how important is it that we get this paragraph one correct? This original or chief sin? It is vital because it doesn't... Um, Paul is not saying that uh, Adam just uh, was a participant in helping to bring sin uh, into the world, but rather it is specifically through him through the one man, Adam, that sin did enter into the world. Uh, so Adam holds the responsibility. Uh, Adam, whose name means man, holds the responsibility for bringing sin and death also into the world. And so it is vital for that truth to be held high uh, because it isn't just a... You know, this is not just a, um, you know, well, Adam did pretty, he tried He tried hard, or he could have done, maybe could have done a little better. No, this is a complete and utter failure. This is a complete uh, falling of man himself. It's not a partial fall. Uh, it's not mostly a fall. It is a complete fall. And so it's vital that we hold that up, uh, as Paul does in Romans 5, uh, as the truth of God's word, that uh, this one man, uh, Adam, brought uh, both sin and death into this world in which we currently live as well, which then means that uh, uh, that has been inherited by us as well, that seems that very same sin. Pastor Moss, if I remember, you read in Genesis, it's always strange that St. Paul says this in Romans 5, but you read in Genesis, isn't, isn't the woman the, the one that brings sin? How, how is it that Adam gets counted this? Well, if you read Genesis chapter 2 and 3, you see that God gave his word to Adam before the wife was even created. Uh, it was entrusted to man upon his creation, and he would have instructed his wife in it, and he bore that responsibility as, as head of the first family to teach that word to his wife. Uh, yes, she is the one who eats of the fruit first who was deceived by the devil, and Paul brings that out as well in 1 Timothy, that the woman was deceived. Uh, but it also says that the man was with her, standing beside her, not taking his place as the head and, or as Luther would say, the preacher in the garden, but allowing false doctrine to come in to beguile his one parishioner, his wife, and to say nothing, to do nothing and to allow the deception to take place and even take part in it himself. So this this is an important teaching because, of course, uh, we live in a day and age where, you know, sexes are utterly confused and the roles of, of men and women are just utterly in chaos. 
But even in the perfect creation, God had this order of creation. And even in the perfect creation, God had specific tests and authorities given to the man and so forth. And, and this is, of course, reflected then in Romans 5, uh, that this is, this is an important thing for us to know and confess, that even in perfection, there was this order. And, and of course, anyone who would want to ascribe this kind of ordering to be a sinful thing has to deal with the fact that God had this this way in the perfect creation as well. And this is important for us to remember and to be keeping mindful of as our world continues to confuse the two, as we find out from the root of the fall, the contentiousness between men and women, the power struggles that go on as a result of the fall. Um, that as the church, we need to properly and clearly teach and give example and, and, get, and good godly examples of what this male and female, husband and wife, head of the household and so forth relationships look like. Uh, very important as, as we live out our lives in this world. So by his disobedience, all people were made sinners and became subject to death and the devil. Pastor Grevy, doesn't that sound unfair? Right, yes. And uh, it's always a dangerous thing uh, to ask God to be fair, um, because uh, fairness is not really um, the same as just, in a, in a very real sense. So God is just. He's a just God. And the just part of that is that uh, everybody becomes subject to death and the devil. All are made sinners uh, through the one man's sin. Uh, whether we would consider it fair or not uh, is really a moot point. Uh, God is just, and uh, his declaration then uh, comes upon, is upon all. It's upon everybody. Uh, so it's it's by the sin of the one man, uh, Adam, and uh, the in, the declaration of God that that follows that that this this is the curse, and the curse uh, is upon the creation, and because it's upon the creation, it's also upon every every uh, uh, man, woman, and child that that follows uh, after Adam and in Adam's footsteps and comes uh, and is brought into this world. So that's that's the just uh, decree of God, and the ordering of these is uh, is vital too. That you know, by His disobedience, all were made sinners, and because we are made sinners, we are going to do the fruit of sin uh, listed out in the next paragraph. I think much of society and even even much of Christianity gets this in reverse because they're trying to, uh, I guess you could say, be more just than God. And they come off then as hypocrites, that it's not that I am a sinner, therefore I sin. Uh, that's true. That's, what, that's the Lutheran doctrine of original sin as it relates to actual sin. But I think much of Christianity and certainly the world around us, when they hear talk about sin and sinner, they think it's the other way around. I sin or I commit enough sins or I do a bad enough sin, then I get labeled a sinner. Yeah. And that's not what we believe at all. That's not what this confesses, and that's not what Scripture teaches but that's what all the scholastics teach. That's what the, the society hears when you call something sinful. They think you're being a hypocrite and excluding them and saying that they're a sinner because they've done X, Y, and Z, and who are you to judge me? And you've you got you to bring them all the way back to this, this pure Lutheran teaching about where our sinful nature comes from. We are sinners. 
on account of the one man, Adam, and we have inherited that. As Pastor Grevy rightly said, it's a moot point to argue it. It's a historical fact. You can't argue contrary to historical fact, uh, as if what would it have been? And then you don't actually make it any more fair to flip it around and say only those who have committed enough sins or bad enough sins are then labeled sinners. Oh, no, we all are. Yeah, this well, this comes into play in many denominations, especially with the with view of children, infants, uh, and and all these different things. You know, the, the groups that deny the horrendous, damnable practice of denying infants baptism, um, just a horrible thing. Uh, which, of course, is fundamentally a denial of what this says about sin. Uh, that that you know somehow they have this innocence, or things aren't credited to them just because they're young, or it's just crazy stuff. Now, just before we move into paragraph two, I do want to mention, you know, all were made sinners, subject to death and the devil. It means there's no neutral parties. Subject to the devil really means subject to the devil, uh, but also subject to death. So this confirms, of course, creation and the fall, rather than uh, evolutionary deaths and so forth and all kinds of strange misreadings of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, that can happen when when people just fall in love with the world and want to seem smart and so forth. Uh, we just would reject those and go with the simple words of what Scripture says, just like we are here with original sin in Genesis 3. We'll just keep to those things. Uh, that's what Lutherans should do. All right, so let's look at uh, paragraph 2 here. And this is, uh, Pastor Moss, you introduced this well as, as the fruit of original sin. The fruit of this sin are the evil deeds that are forbidden, forbidden in the Ten Commandments, these include unbelief, false faith, idolatry, being without the fear of God, pride, despair, utter blindness, and, in short, not knowing or regarding God. Also lying, abusing God's name, not praying, not calling on God, not regarding God's word, being disobedient to parents, murdering, being unchaste, stealing, deceiving, and such. All right, a very quick run-through of the Ten Commandments, but what is... Really noticeable here, um, Pastor Moss, you might want to draw this out a little bit too. It spends a lot of time on the first three, especially the first one. It kind of almost matches the large catechism in that respect um, of a describing the, the sins against the first commandment versus then moving to the second and third, and then, of course, uh, into the second table with the sins against the neighbor. Um, this, I think, is also reflected. You, you talked about how we get original and actual messed up. And how we don't uh, we don't get these things quite right. Well, here we I think we see another mess up, and this one happens much more commonly even in Lutheran circles, and that is the second table of the law takes preeminence over the first. Hmm. Whereas the pattern in our confessions is, of course, the first table of the law is the first table for a reason, and and it ought to be consuming more of our thoughts and reflections, and and thus more of our confession of our sins. Uh, Pastor Moss, you want to give some comment on this paragraph too? Yeah, sure. If, if your readers are following along in the Concordia Reader's Edition, I think it's about six or seven lines that unpack or itemize sins against the first three commandments, and then just one word for each of the fourth through tenth commandments. It's uh, it's pretty clear what his, what the, the fruit of sin is and what really evil deeds are, where, as you said, the, we have this tendency in our society to look at the sins that are visible— like adultery or murder, uh, and and say, oh, that is evil. Somebody who would do that is truly evil. But somebody who skips church week after week, month after month, 
well, that's not evil, that's just acceptable. Somebody who takes the Lord's name in vain, oh, well, don't we all, right? Uh, as opposed to somebody who would use some other form of uh, crass speech, well, that's obviously sinful and wrong, but no, taking the name of the Lord, forgetting prayers, uh, we, we have such a distorted view of our own sin, as we'll see in the third paragraph, uh, that we don't see as sin the things that truly are, the things that uh, disrespect God, are harmful to ourselves and our and our souls, and it, it's quite clear that this is the chief way we sin. And so when people look at their own lives and say, uh, I'm doing okay, I haven't done X, Y, or Z, it's usually second table things. Uh, and they have not paid any attention to the, the failure under the first table of the law and how even those latter commandments ultimately come back to the first table uh, and and not loving God. Uh, looking at the, the last few there, being disobedient to parents, well, why does, why does that sin uh, incur God's wrath and deserve his total damnation? Because it shows you hate God. Why is murdering or, or uh, being unchaste, stealing, deceiving, and such, why are these things damnable sins in God's eyes? Because it's hatred for God. It comes back to the first commandment. It's utter blindness without any fear of God. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, you could go on and on with these commandments. Like you say, Luther in the large catechism does exactly that. So uh, by all means, take up the large catechism and, and uh, hear his preaching on these commandments. Right, exactly. Um, as, as we look at this, just the idea that, you know, <clears throat> The, the temptation is to focus on the second table versus the first. And, and I think that happens in our, in our modern environment, especially because of the, the want and desire to have kind of this ecumenical thing. Because, of course, the glaring big commandment that fl flares up here when you properly understand them is the second commandment, the use of God's name. And that includes, of course, as Luther teaches in the large catechism, the worst abuse of it, the most vile breaking of the second commandment is false doctrine. And, of course, to get along with all these other church groups, what do you have to look past? False doctrine. And so while we want to sit here and extol, you know, the gift of life and so forth, we're willing to look past all the violations of the Second Commandment. That, that, that's kind of a dangerous thought, wouldn't you think, uh, Pastor Grevy? Yes, I mean, it is. Uh, for example, I've, um, the, um, you mentioned the Second Commandment, and... Um, the only way that the um, well, the only way that that any of the commandments uh, two through ten are kept is if the first is being kept, and you can only keep um, you can only keep uh, the law is only kept in Christ, and so uh, the one of these examples of pitting the second table of the law against the first table of the law. Uh, is in trying to play the eighth commandment over and against the second commandment, but you can't. You can only keep the eighth commandment if you're keeping the second commandment. You you honoring uh, God's name uh, first and foremost then will uh, will um, lead to also um, honoring the name and reputation of our neighbor. Uh, but so oftentimes we see. As you've mentioned before, we our 
uh, we're sinners such that um, our consciences tend to be appeased by this civil righteousness, that is, the righteousness that is in the eyes of others. And so we tend to be appeased more when we feel that our consciences are being assuaged uh, in the sight of our neighbor. Um, and so we tend to, uh, pl- that's, that's one of the reasons I think we tend to uh, play the second table of the law over and against the first table of the law. And, of course, that's not right, uh, because uh, our conscience, uh, a clean conscience, ultimately comes through the forgiveness of sins, and the forgiveness of sins comes from God. It's yeah, it's God a matter, it's sins, a matter that goes it through God's God word. justifies. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we're going to have to take this up after our break uh, again. Yeah. And we're talking uh, original sin, actual sin, but also here the tables of the law and our focus upon them and abuses that kind of creep in amongst the Roman Catholic Church, but also against uh, amongst us as, as just sinners that uh, these kind of temptations lay here for us. And so we're, we're learning this from the scriptures. We're learning this from our Lutheran confessions, which are nothing more than a pure confession of the scriptures. And so you are listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO AM Radio, the Master of the Good News. And we will be back after a brief break. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. This week on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to the Ascension of Our Lord with Pastor David Peterson. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a teaching on Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2. And we'll discuss the Incarnation in the second article of the Apostles' Creed with Pastor Peter Bender. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. On a hill For weeks, George Bennard had the phrase, I'll cherish the old rugged cross running through his head. Finally, he sat down at his kitchen table in Albion, Michigan, and one of the great American hymns came together. 
Drawing on language and images from Luke, Galatians, Hebrews, and Revelation, the old rugged cross has been a gospel music favorite for decades and performed by recording artists such as Mahalia Jackson, Brad Paisley, Willie Nelson, Alan Jackson, George Beverly Shea, and Johnny Cash and June Carter. In the museum collections of Museum of the Bible is a copy of the sheet music signed by the author from more than a century ago. Engage with the Bible and its impact on history, culture, and art. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on KFUO AM Radio. I'm this week's host, Pastor Joshua Shear, coming to you from the high plains of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Joined with a couple guests here, Pastor Mike Grevy of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Golden, Illinois, as well as Pastor Matt Moss of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church and School in Corcoran and Maple Grove, Minnesota. Uh, these Midwestern guys, as so many Lutherans are, uh, so, we are finishing up this section on sin as far as uh, par paragraph 2 of Article 1 of the Small Card Articles, the third part. So, if you're following along, yeah, it's page uh, 270 in your Reader's Edition, second edition of the Book of Concord. We finished our discussion, a or we, we were ending our discussion a little bit on this uh, second table versus first table, but I think we passed over something we need to just touch upon, and, and I think, Pastor Moss, you, you mentioned this earlier, uh, this idea of original sin being the root of the fruit of actual sin and how, of course, we need to stress this. And I think um, the formula of Concord, I think, stresses this uh, even more so in Article 1 when it talks about how when we when we preach condemnation, when we preach uh, that, that you are, are deserving of death, hell, damnation, and so forth, it is fundamentally a preaching of original sin which is not, like you said, which is not like most people think about it. When, when you preach to most people and when most Christian denominations preach about sin, they're talking about, you know, lustful thoughts or hateful words or you stole something or, you know, you're coveting something, that there's just this strangeness that happens there. Pastor Moss, is there anything else you'd like to add into that understanding of kind of this fruit versus the root of, of, act, of original sin? Well, just that we are, you know, conceived and uh, born as natural enemies of God, children of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We are by nature hostile to God. We do not, the natural mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Uh, we'll get into this a little later in the article with the different uh, heresies about this. But natural man does not have power for good. He has one, one power according to his sinful nature, and that power is to sin. Uh, we can get more and more creative and devious with how we do that, uh, what shape that fruit takes, but there's only one type of fruit that grows on that tree, and it's sin, because we are conceived and born sinful. That's who we are, and we will produce that. Yeah, and this is why no righteousness of man can, can avail before God, except for, of course, the righteousness of Christ. And this is what this is why we teach so strongly on sin. Is of course, as we teach strongly on sin, it glorifies the work of Christ and what He has done uh, for the salvation of sinners. All right, let's get into paragraph three here. 
This hereditary sin is such a deep corruption of nature that no reason can understand it. Rather, it must be believed from the revelation of Scripture. Therefore, it is nothing but error and blindness that the scholastic doctors have taught in regard to this article. And then in paragraph 4 and forward, we'll get into this, but it's specific errors of the scholastics and so forth. A um, couple things here we, we need to talk about. Hereditary sin is such a deep corruption of the nature. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't utterly... Uh, it doesn't utterly replace the nature. That I mean, that's something that the formula of Concord will also address. But it's a deep corruption of the nature that no reason can understand it. Pastor Grevy, can you can you talk a little bit about this? I mean, this is like uh, you have nerve damage, so you can't feel the pain. Correct? That's a good analogy. Yes, uh, it's you know, it's um, the only way that we can understand it properly uh, is from Scripture, as it goes on to say there. Uh, so deep it is. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's that deep that we just, you just can't figure it out uh, apart from believing the Word of God, uh, what the Word of God says about it. Uh, that it literally uh, means that we are, uh, you know, dead in sins and trespasses. That's that's how deep the corruption of the nature is, um, and yet, uh, as you mentioned again, it's important that you said this that it's not our the nature is has not been replaced. It's been deep. It has the deep corruption, and so it's still there, uh, but uh, because of the sin of the one man Adam. Uh, so deeply corrupted it is that there's only one thing that can uh, rescue us from that deep corruption, and that's the that's the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, the giving of His body and the shedding of His blood for the sin of the world. That's the only thing uh, that um, atones and pleases the the Father, Father's wrath in such a way that um, uh, we're, we can be rescued from that. Uh, but apart from that, uh, we're, we're, we would still be dead. And um, so that's that's how deep the corruption is. It took the death of God's Son to rescue us from that. Yeah. Oh, amen. Pastor Moss, would you like to add anything to this, this understanding of, uh, you know, it has to be believed from the Revelation of Scripture, how bad and deep it actually is, and so forth? Yeah, it's something that the Holy Spirit must teach through the Word. It's not going to be taught any other way or by any other means, in the same way that only through the, the preaching of the Gospel does the Holy Spirit work conversion and faith uh, within this poor, corrupt sinner. Uh, the, the, the natural man would arrive at some conclusions about his own sinfulness, right? This would be like the cliches you usually hear. Nobody's perfect. Hmm. Uh that is completely different than what we believe, to just uh, look at a sin and say, well, nobody's perfect. That's not a confession of sin. That's excusing us. Uh, and that gives you kind of a, if we're going to take up the confessions as a pastoral document rather than a historical document, I think that's a great wake-up call that when you hear some of those things like, uh, well, nobody's perfect, or I've done that myself, these are excuses. And if that's our reaction to sin... What do we think the absolution is? Is well, it absolutely even... just another kind of excusing of the sin as opposed to calling it what it is and dealing with it the 
way Christ does, uh, with his blood from the cross to you through the means of grace. You can you can see this even though in a Christianized form um, with the kind of uh, unmeaning uh, confession of well we're all sinners, right? You know, th- right. Th- that it's not just you know well nobody's perfect, but you can even hear Christians sometimes excuse things by saying well you know we're all sinners. So well you you look at scripture and this is uh, the way original sin especially and of course the actual sins that flow from it. You see how the Holy Spirit through Holy Scripture and Jesus Christ and the Gospels react to sin, and it's not shrugging it off with these platitudes. They're not saying, well, I guess, you know, everybody's got something that's wrong in their life. Who am I to judge? No, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Paul says that he weeps for his brothers who are dying apart from Christ. How often does the, does the psalmist weep and cry out in verse about uh, the the condition of the world and the enemies who are persecuting us and all of the sin that is going uh, unaddressed. Uh, woe to, to us Christians, and especially us pastors who oversee the confession and absolution in the Church, uh, who take this cavalier attitude to it. Uh, do we not believe what Scripture says about a lake of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth? Let's get on with it. Uh, I think I think it touches upon what we were talking about just a little while ago about lack of fear of God. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and I think the other new way I've now heard this expressed is, oh, well, you know, we're just we're just all broken. That this word broken has now uh, replaced an honest, you know, confession of sin. And it it's an attempt again to lessen what sin is. Which, of course, in the end, because we've been talking about the relationship between original sin and also the, the, the work of Jesus in the atonement, when you lessen original sin, when you lessen sin, you, what, are you, what are you doing to the work of Jesus in the process? And, and these, are the, these are the ultimate dangers with the kind of lessening of sin is you, you actually, you know, you're, you're taking away the gospel in the end. Um, you're, you're removing the pure confession of what Christ has done. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. And, and paragraph 11, the very end of this, after it wraps up the, the false teachings, says exactly that. Uh, if such teaching, if such false teachings were true, if we have all these wrong-headed teachings about the ability of man or man's sinful condition, what we lose is Christ. Christ has died in vain. We would have no defect or sin. If it's just a problem of nobody's perfect, well... Why did Christ have to come and die, and why did the death take such a gruesome form as having God the Father forsake him on the cross? Uh, that is more than just uh, needing a little help. This is not a, an eighth grader stu- struggling with a test, and the teacher comes over and says, oh, here, let me help you with that. That is not the incarnation. Correct. That's a good way to bring it in now. The, the paragraph 11, you, quite, you quoted it a little bit there. So let's talk about these errors of the scholastic doctors. So let's talk about the first one, paragraph 4. Uh, Since Adam's fall, the natural powers of human beings have remained whole and uncorrupted, and by nature people have a right to reason and a good will, as the philosophers teach. All right. Pastor Moss, what, what do we need to summarize here? This is just a horrible error, which yeah, it, the Bible a, doesn't teach. It's a philosophical teaching. Philosophers have a very different anthropology than biblical theology does. And by anthropology, the study of man. Philosophers, by the nature of their great learning and ability, have a much higher view of man's uh, morality and ability 
than what the scriptures would give us credit for. The scriptures are going to say things like every inclination of his of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's our condition. Oh, the philosophers don't say that. We're we're basically good. Yeah, that's I mean, well that's the confession of God's word prior to the flood and after the flood. Mm-hmm. It says it in both yep. places to make sure that we realize that now the flood didn't take that part of the corruption out. Um so yeah, we we just have this this error that oh well we're all we're fine, but of course this is also touching upon scholastics, which means it's it's part of Roman Catholic medieval theology as well. Well, it's part um, of any it's part of any church that exalts reason equal to or above holy scripture. So you Calvinists out there, this is you, um, as well, um, and then of course the the free will evangelical types. Just this is yeah. It's all over. Um, uh, original sin is really one of those teachings where the Lutherans are kind of alone um, with Scripture. So we're not really alone, but amongst the denominations and so forth, the the mess of Christendom, um, there's much error in regards to this. Uh, let's take a look at paragraph 5. A person has a free will to do good and not to do evil, and on the other hand, to not do good and do evil. Pastor Grevy, uh, what do we have to say about this error? Well, free will uh, is, and Luther, um, in his bondage of the will, uh, does a fantastic job of this. It's a great piece of work. the The will, uh, the will is, the will was free before the fall into sin because it was free from sin. However, after the fall into sin, the will was not free. The will was in bondage, and it was in bondage to sin and death. Um, and that's the case uh, until and unless we're rescued. Until and unless we're rescued, there is no such thing as free will. There is only, there is only, the will is only in bondage until and unless we are rescued. So there is no... Uh, the, the 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 sinner who remains uh, an unbeliever has uh, no free will whatsoever. Our wills are set free by Christ. We become new men, and we are set free from sin. We are set free from the condemnation of sin. Uh, now we still have this old Adam about our necks. We still have this flesh about our necks. Uh, original sin doesn't magically go away. In our baptism, uh, we still have the devil and the world and our own flesh hounding us uh, until the day that we're taken from this life into the next. Uh, but our wills are set free by Christ from the condemnation of sin. His blood-bought redemption uh, sets us free uh, to be children of God, as we are called to be by our, by our Father in heaven. Uh, but as far as this, uh, again, this philosophical notion, they're just, it's just a, um, it's just a, um, almost like speaking in a riddle to say that, that a person has free will to do good and not to do evil, and on the other hand, to not do good and do evil. Uh, it's just a, it's just another way to try to walk around or, or soft shoe original sin. Uh, and in the end, it just gets, uh, it just gets squashed. There's just no way to sock to original sin. You just can't. We just can't get out from under it. Yeah, which I think ties in with what Pastor Moss said about also the philosophers and how they elevate man 
And, and of course, that's part of their job security is they have to think that way. Otherwise, no one will take them seriously. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's look at paragraph 6 and 7. Uh, by natural human powers, a person can observe and keep all God's commands. By natural human powers, a person can love God above all things and love his neighbors and himself. Um, Pastor Moss, what, natural human powers. Uh, basically, so, so by human nature, we can now be perfect. According to the scholastic teaching and the philosophical approach to, to man, yes, they would say that even before the Holy Spirit creates faith, that even before conversion, what is man capable of? He is capable of loving God, loving neighbor, keeping the commands, obeying what God says. And, and this is a, a really straight, simple deduction that Erasmus uses, and Luther quickly dispatches in the bondage of the will. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple syllogism that if God commands man to do something, man must therefore have the ability to do it. Hmm. And of course, Luther shows very quickly that that is ridiculous and not logically necessary and obviously not taught in Scripture. So, you know, the Scripture part should be obvious to, to us. We've already quoted a few of those passages that show that apart from Christ, it's impossible to please God. But even in, uh, in human terms, he takes up the logical... Uh, position that shows, well, you can tell a starving man that he must eat or he will die, and that doesn't mean he has the ability or the means, the food, to do it. Yeah. Let's look at paragraph 8, which I think touches upon, I think, Pastor Grevy, I think you brought this up earlier about motivations. Uh, if a person does as much as is in, in him, God certainly grants him grace. So this is uh, try harder or have the best motivations, right? Right, exactly. Uh Walter had this great devotion. Um, it was it was for Wednesday of of the previous week uh, in Easter, and um, he talks about the problem of conviction being used as justification for doing what's right. In other words, uh, just because somebody has a good conviction does not thereby mean that they are doing the right thing. And that's what uh, that's what Walter brought out uh, in the devotion. Uh, he based his um, he based this devotion on um, on Ephesians two, verse three, where it says, "Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." So he bases the devotion on that on that verse and talks about how uh, it just completely debunks the notion that conviction can be used as uh, uh, trying to justify ourselves as having done what is right in the eyes of God. Um, and that's the, so that kind of, uh, you know, in a sense ties in, of course, with uh, these previous errors too, you know, by natural human powers, a person can observe and keep all God's commands. Well, um, not only do the conviction, not only would the convictions have to be perfect and unstained, uh, but also all of the other thoughts, words, and deeds, and our very nature would have to be unstained, which it is not. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we just, you know, there is no way to, there's no, there's not a, a way humanly possible to earn God God's grace by way of our uh, convictions. Right. It doesn't mean that there's no place for motivation and. Uh, 
and no, we should have them. godly motivations. That's that's part of the teaching of scripture. Absolutely. But we can't. We can never justify right. ourselves by our motivations. I mean, not the on Jews, the basis of that, right? The Jews who crucified Christ had had great motivations too, but um, that right. it still was sin. I mean, Christ still had to call out for them to be forgiven. Uh, Father, forgive them, um, even if they didn't know. All right, let's look at yeah. paragraph nine. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into the Lord's Supper here. If a person if a person wishes to go to the sacrament, there is no need of good intention to do good. It is enough if a person does not have a wicked purpose to commit sin. So entirely good is human nature, and so effective is the sacrament. Pastor Moss, uh, why don't you just begin to unravel this one, please? Yeah, I want I want our listeners to uh, to keep this in its context very closely because we don't want to uh, misread this as if Luther is. A, few, uh, a future pietist, something coming down the pipe of uh, a few hundred years later in, in the theology of Lutheranism. Uh, he's not saying that uh, a, a Lutheran who has a weak will, who has given into sin, has a troubled conscience, and wonders if the sacrament is for him, should that person commune, or does that person need to stay away because they have not perfected themselves yet? Uh, that was a prevailing teaching in this in this teaching of pietism, and it's wrong. Uh, the sacrament is for grieving consciences who are grieved by their sin uh, and, and want to do better. Right? That is what this is getting at. So in the, in the context here, dealing with scholastic arguments, they're saying that the, the mere fact that a man does not have a wicked intent to sin, you know, I'm not going to the supper planning to go home and murder my brother, uh, well, that's proof enough that my nature is basically good. I've earned the sacrament. Uh, you know that—that's the the false teaching here that Luther is uh, putting down, uh, because that that too, as we said with all these heresies, that robs Christ of His sacrifice. What what are you coming to the sacrament for if you're basically good and are not intending to leave and do something truly uh, manifestly sinful? Uh, this robs Christ of his work at the cross and where it's given to you in the sacrament. Uh, but be very clear then that uh, for those of you who are, are listening and, and have your sins in front of you this week and are, are looking forward with great anticipation to the ascension of our Lord this Thursday so you have a midweek opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper uh, and to the pastors listening, give them the Lord's Supper this feast day. Uh, if you're sitting here going, well, do I want to do good enough? Am I, am I hoping to do enough good? Am I not worthy of the sacrament? Talk to your pastor. Have confession and absolution. Uh, it is right in there that you acknowledge your sins. You don't want to do these. We acknowledge the, the struggle between old Adam and new man. Uh, Paul acknowledges it in Romans chapter 7. Uh, we, we know that that is what you, dear listeners, are struggling with and dealing with. That's why Christ died. And that's why he gave you the sacrament. Go with confidence and receive it for the strengthening of your faith and the forgiveness of your sins. Neither of those two things, the strengthening of faith or the forgiving of sins, is in view in this scholastic error that Luther is, is putting down, uh, because he's dealing with the height of pride and arrogance that would come to the sacrament, thinking that it actually doesn't need the benefit. Right. Well, it's a it's a faithless reception that he's talking about. Uh, that oh, you know, pure ritual, yes. Right. It's it, this is the the faithless. Whereas, of course, the Catechism always teaches that, along with faith, which trusts this word of God, that kind of understanding that that's how 
uh, we receive the blessed and, and benefit of these sacraments. Uh, paragraph 10, as we come into timely, as we're coming up to the Pentecost season, Scripture does not teach that the Holy Spirit with his grace is necessary for a good work. This is an error of the scholastics again. Uh, and of course, it does teach that uh, the Holy Spirit is necessary. Uh, we need to be reborn, uh, regenerate, um, these these kind of things. Uh, uh, in fact, it says, that, of course, that faith is necessary for something to be a good work, uh, faith in Christ. And so, uh, absolutely, we would deny this because they're they're here again, blaspheming Scripture, Second Commandment issue. But let's work on paragraph eleven real quick as we have to wrap up here today. These and many similar ideas have arisen from lack of understanding and ignorance, both about sin and about Christ our Savior. They are truly heathen teachings that we cannot endure. For if such teaching were true, then Christ has died in vain. A human being would have no defect or sin for which he would have died. Or he would have died only for the body, not for the soul, since the soul is sound and only the body is subject to death. All right. We have very short amounts of time, so Pastor, uh, Pastor Grevy, we've got 30 seconds if you want to summarize anything up from that paragraph. Yes, well, basically, uh, if such teaching were true, as it says, then Christ has died in vain. In other words, uh, if such teaching were true, then the gospel really would not be the gospel. And that's, that's, the, that's the whole thing, that um, the, all of the comfort and all of the peace and, all, and the forgiveness of sins is simply obliterated and taken away by these teachings. And so these false teachings, as, as it says there, they just cannot be tolerated cannot tolerate them at all, and we won't tolerate them. Um, right. And it's make, just, it makes an impure gospel. I mean, it makes it, an impure it, gospel. Yeah. It robs us of the comfort that is what Christ has done. Pastor exactly. Moss, you have about 30 seconds as well. Would you like to summarize anything up in this paragraph 11? Yeah, an, an impure gospel, as you put it, is no gospel. It's all law. If this stuff is true, then we are pointed right back to the law, and we're either going to die eternally in our own pride or be driven to despair with no consolation left to turn to. That's why this, uh, this great confession and reformation of our forefathers is a pastoral one, not a political one like the Catholics who wanted the power and the money and the honor. This is about Christ and what he's done for real sinners, real people, just like the ones that are listening to us now. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful note to end uh, today's session on. You've been listening to Concord Matters. We've been hearing about original sin, but surprisingly, and and of course not really surprisingly, for us as Lutherans, it becomes about the gospel. That is the pure gospel of Christ Jesus and what He has done for the salvation of sinners, uh, for all those from Adam on who have inherited this original sin, this corruption that is so deep we don't even understand it except by Scripture alone. That this Christ has, of course, atoned for the sin of the world with his own blood, sufficing the f and his just uh, rewards of sin as well. Uh, go to church this weekend, Ascension Day this week. Receive the sacrament for your benefit. We'll be back next week.